Hello, you're listening to Leadership in Extraordinary Times with me, Peter Tufano, the Dean of the Said Business School at the University of Oxford. We're a diverse and global community of academics and researchers, students, entrepreneurs, executives, and alumni, working together to help transform the global business landscape. And in this podcast, we'll share our research, insights, and hear from those on the front line of this crisis. We need to think about the world in which we find ourselves, but we also need to think about the world that we want to build as we emerge from this pandemic, an economic, social, and climate crisis. This calls for a new type of leadership, leadership in extraordinary times. Episode three, how capital markets can take sustainability to the next level. As the world strives toward zero net carbon, corporate sustainability data is no longer going to be a nice to have or something to make shareholders feel a bit better about their investments. It will be central to a corporation's long-term license to operate and therefore inseparable from the perspective of financial risk and return. This means that accountants must agree and implement a set of global sustainability standards, which is what this episode is all about. So we've brought together a panel of experts who are perfectly placed to help us explore this high-profile debate. Sandy Boss is the Global Head of Investment Stewardship for BlackRock and a member of BlackRock's Global Executive Committee. Dame Elizabeth Corley is the Chair of the Impact Investing Institute and Non-Executive Director of Pearson, BAA Systems, and Morgan Stanley. Dejinder Singh is the Deputy Secretary General of the International Organization of Securities Commissions. And Richard Barker is Professor of Accounting and Associate Dean here at Said Business School. In an open letter to the International Financial Reporting Standards Foundation, or IFRS, Richard and seven other colleagues, myself included, recently set out how the IFRS has the relationships, the authority, and the expertise to take on this additional role and to create a Sustainability Standards Board, or SSB, which would then set reporting standards. Chairing the discussion is Clara Barbie, Chief Executive of the Impact Management Project. I'll hand you now over to Clara. Hello and welcome to today's Leadership in Extraordinary Times event from Oxford University's Side Business School. Wherever in the world you are, thank you for joining us. Today's subject is all about sustainability reporting and the need for sustainability standards globally. So now let's go into the debate and I want to start with Richard. Richard, the IFRS Foundation has just consulted on whether there's a need for global sustainability standards and the role that it might play. Can you scene set for us? What are the key concepts for our audience to be aware of? Why is this such an important moment for the IFRS and what else is happening around the IFRS to make this a a moment for rapid progress? So I think to frame this, it helps to start with the International Accounting Standards Board which sets global financial reporting standards, which are mandatory in in more than 140 countries around the world. The ISB is an independent body. It sits within the governance structure, the independent, robust governance structure of the IFRS Foundation. And its mission is to provide useful information to investors. That's the primary focus. Uh, Financial materiality, that is sometimes called. Now, the way that the ISB interprets that mission is to provide information through financial statements, including the notes to the accounts. So we have mandatory financial statements globally. Now, there are two ways in which that provides actually limited information from an investor's point of view. Uh, the first is that financial statements are historical. Investors are concerned with the future. They're concerned with future cash flows. Accounting records what has happened in the past and what the current rights and obligations of the reporting entity are. So if you take something like climate change, where we know we have a dramatic global transition to net zero by 2050 ahead of us, and one that hasn't happened yet, so we know there's going to be a significant discontinuity, the accounts provide limited information by their very nature. The second limitation is that accounting is only concerned with the financial effects on the reporting entity itself, of the entity's activities and, and, and other activities and events. So if, for example, an entity emits carbon and that imposes a cost on society, but the entity does not pay that cost, but there's an externality, an external cost, then that's not in the accounts. 
But again, from an investor's point of view, you might want to know about that because a business with a high carbon footprint is one that needs to undertake a significant transition of its business model. So not surprisingly, investors are increasingly calling for more sustainability information, not just climate, but ranging all the way to, to social inclusion. And the reason they're calling for sustainability information is because sustainability data is relevant to understanding the viability of business models, the corporate license to operate, and therefore the corporate capacity to create enterprise value. So we have an information cap, right? We have a, a global standard setting body that is providing financial statements, and we have global investors who are requiring more information these days than just financial statements. So um, the capital allocation decisions made by investors and indeed made by companies themselves are in principle compromised by that lack of information. So that's why the International Financial Reporting Standards Foundation has been consulting on creating a sustainability standards board. The idea is that a sustainability standards board would sit alongside the International Accounting Standards Board. So the ISB would set financial accounting standards, the Sustainability Standards Board would set sustainability reporting standards. Very helpful. And I want to move from that conceptual framing to Tajinda um, at IOSCO. Tajinda, this is not the first time that the IFRS Foundation has been at an important point in time. 20 years ago, the IOSCO played a major role again. And I want to ask you, what is similar about the moment we're facing now with the IFRS Foundation and what you saw as IOSCO 20 years ago, and what may be different in the considerations that you're making as securities regulators? Sure, no, th thanks a lot, Clara. And uh, before talking about the history, let me take just a few moments to explain why IOSCO is interested. So just to back up a bit, any financial system, of course, has at its two ends, the providers of finance and the users of finance. And therefore, the role of investors and capital markets is paramount in such a system. And that is where securities regulators come in. And that is where IOSCO as an organization of over 125 securities regulators that regulate more than 95% of the world's capital markets comes in. These securities regulators are responsible for the oversight of capital markets and have responsibility for disclosure regulations in many jurisdictions, including the form and content of financial reporting. And that's why we set up a sustainable finance task force that published a report about the difficulties in this area, including the plethora of voluntary initiatives that Richard mentioned. Since then, we've conducted fact-finding work, reviewing corporate reports and engaging with asset managers, all of whom confirm that the current investor demand for sustainability information is not being met. And that's why the IOSCO board discussed this in November last year and agreed that the following steps were necessary. Firstly, that we need to develop similar to what Richard mentioned about the accounting standards, a pathway to mandatory standards in this area beyond comply or explain. Secondly, to engage with the IFRS Foundation. And thirdly, to not forget that, you know, these discussions also should involve going forward the establishment of an assurance framework for sustainability disclosures. And these objectives take us or are taking us to these conclusions, which are firstly, to support the establishment of the Sustainability Standards Board uh, that, that the IFRS Foundation is consulting on, focusing on information that serves investors and capital markets or enterprise value creation that uh, sits alongside the IASB. And we think this would command sufficient market acceptance to support mandatory disclosures across jurisdictions to allow integration with the financial reporting standards and form the basis for an audit and assurance framework. Secondly, to encourage this SSB to leverage on the content of the Alliance of Standard Setters. For example, the climate prototype that was published last, last year. And thirdly, to apply a building blocks approach to provide a common consistent baseline of non-financial information. We hope that a system can be set up which can allow filtering from the superset of the wider sustainability topics, from the largest gray box that Richard showed to the inner box. For example, things that are related to the stakeholder impact in a way that helps the SSB assess the dynamic materiality of sustainability topics. Coming now to the question about what we did in the past, we've had 
a long history of collaboration with the IFRS Foundation. And that's not surprising since IOSCO and the IFRS Foundation share the objectives of promoting and facilitating transparency within the capital markets. So in 2000, in the year 2000, IOSCO issued a resolution that set the foundation for the adoption of the IFRS across member jurisdictions, leading to the establishment of the IASB, the International Accounting Standards Board, and the current governance system, as Richard mentioned, that's a robust system. And that has also at, at its uh, three tier, at the top tier, it has the monitoring board that IOSCO chairs, uh, because securities regulators, they have an interest there in the interest of investors. So regarding our relationship, we also have a, a protocol with the IFRS Foundation. As I mentioned, IOSCO chairs the monitoring board, which oversees the IFRS trustees to ensure that they discharge their duties in accordance with the IFRS constitution. So these are, in a sense, the similarities which we can actually use now going forward, because this is, again, information that capital markets and investors need. In terms of what's different, now, unlike in, in 2000, we already have a structure under the IFRS Foundation that has proven to be successful. Jurisdictions have adopted endorsement mechanisms. And because we've already have this and we've seen it work, it can help speed up the process in this round. Secondly, we have the important work of the Alliance of Standard Setters, which we have encouraged. And the climate prototype that I mentioned that builds on the TCFT recommendations as well can provide a running start for the SSB when it is set up to go ahead and go forward. And just before I hand back to Clara, let me mention that the sustainability task force that IOSCO is working on, this is an important element of that, but there are still two other areas that we are working on, asset managers and greenwashing and ESG indices and data providers. But the one thing that we note, which is relevant here as well, is that sustainability reporting is crucial to all of them. Thank you, Tajinda. And we've had a, a question from the audience, quite rightly saying we get the urgency. What needs to be done to make sure it happens urgently? Is there, is there one big thing um, that you think needs to happen? And, and Richard, maybe I'll come back to you before I go to Sandy and then Elizabeth and just say, what is your reflection, having looked at this space as an academic, Richard, on, on the big levers we can pull to make things happen fast? Well, I think as Tajinda has, has mentioned, the fact that the IFRS Foundation has an existing infrastructure, it has a governance framework, it has a, things that seem trivial, like a capacity to translate standards into different languages that really matter for getting these things done. So you have a framework already in place. I think absolutely critical is you need the support of the broader ecosystem. So if there's strong investor support, strong corporate support, and strong support from regulators and jurisdictions around the world, then it can happen very quickly. But that support absolutely does need to come together. The setting of accounting standards is not a quick process. And it's actually really important that the IFRS Foundation itself has a, a faster track, more entrepreneurial mechanism, as it were, for progressing sustainability standards. Final thing to say, there's a lot of existing work that's already been done, right? So if you take the work of the Task Force and Climate Related Financial Disclosure, combine that with the work of the other standard setters and framework providers in this space, you can get to a carbon standard really quite quickly if the if the motivation's there. Sandy, I want to come to you. Now you, you know, Richard has just said how important the support of the ecosystem is, and without question, that means investors. At BlackRock, you're using this information every day to make actual decisions. And so I want to understand your perspective on it. You know, why why are these disclosures so important for your decision making? And and actually, why is convergence so important? Why do we need to be talking about global mandatory at this point rather than what we have had? Great question. And um, I think anyone who's read Larry's 2021 letter, our CEO Larry Fink's letter, will know how committed we are to our conviction and our investment conviction that sustainability risk is in fact an investment risk for our clients and also um, managing sustainability risk well presents opportunities. So I think Larry said in his letter, there's no company that will find that its business model is untouched by the transition to a low carbon economy. And you know, last year we said climate risk is investment risk. We think there'll be this fundamental reallocation of capital and then a few, you know, a few months later, people said, well, what about COVID? Might that actually delay it? But in fact, what we've seen during 2020 is a, an acceleration of that reallocation of capital. 
And we've also seen in parallel to the changes associated with climate risk, some really significant events that the pandemic has shown in terms of companies' social and economic license to operate. So it's not just about climate risk, but it's this incredibly fragile ecosystem that we're living in and how companies are increasingly expected to, to be playing a part. So then what does that mean in terms of you know, data and sustainability disclosure? How do you get from this investment thesis to you know, what we're looking for? Well, if our investors want to actually express that conviction, then they need information and they use it in two ways. One would be at a company specific level to understand this is the value of this company, not just as a function of its financial statements, but also a function of the broader sustainability risk and opportunity that it faces. You know, as Richard mentioned, it's not just what's in those backward looking financial statements that matters. But beyond that, we're also interested in looking in a comparable way across companies and being able to form products that will tilt toward companies that are managing that sustainability risk better and away from companies that are not doing so well. And we saw, for example, in the formation of ESG-oriented um, indices, the products around those last year, 80% of those outperformed their traditional benchmark during the course of the year. And you know that other research confirms similar findings. So we really see that this is not just a cyclical event, but really a structural trend as more and more investors are seeking to find ways to put their money toward their belief that we share, which is that sustainability is an important investment theme. So why do we need the common standards then? Well, look, I mean, we've done a lot in the last year, particularly our stewardship group has met with the companies that we invest in on behalf of our clients to ask them to do disclosures using the TCFD framework. We're also very interested in the standards that are set out by SASB. You know, they're specific, they're industry relevant, very suitable for the kind of investment decisions we need to make. And there's been tremendous progress in those standards. And we've seen now 1,700 TCFD reporters. We've now have 400% increase in SASB reporters in the last year. But that said, companies are still facing a variety of different possible ways of disclosing. It is um, for them a bit of an alphabet soup still. And then that means that we as investors don't get the information that we need. So for that reason, you know, we are ready for the Sustainability Standards Board to stand up. We're very enthusiastic about the COP26 um, deadline that the trustees have set. And um, you know, our view is that the IFRS is just the perfect organization to take this on. I think we, everyone on this call and hundreds of others have been really supportive of this idea because that single global standard will help both the companies and ourselves as investors to be able to understand this incredibly important set of risks for the investor community. Thank you, Sandy, that's great. And, and really obviously brings it home in terms of how it actually affects decisions, which is what this is all about. And on that note, I wanted just to, to bring you in, Elizabeth, and I'm, I'm going to come back to you later as well. But you're unique insofar as you have the experience, not only in asset management, but also in terms of being a director on the board of large companies. You also chair the Impact Investing Institute, and therefore you're exposed to changing investor preferences, which I want to come back to, but obviously also purpose-driven business. Now, Sandy was talking about purpose-driven business, and, and I imagine that many of the purpose-driven businesses that you're looking at, Sandy, are the big ones. In impact investing, you get a whole range, right down to smaller you know, SMEs, um, but also flavors in terms of how they're mission-driven, including social enterprises. And we have a question from Ryan Chenwing in British Columbia, Canada, who rightly says, and I think, Elizabeth, it's helpful to come to you for this, how do you see sustainability reporting having an effect on social enterprises? Are we talking about something that's foreign to them? Or in fact, is this their bread and butter? How do you think about that? Well, thanks, Clara. And it is a great question on two levels. One, it's around outcomes rather than just risk avoidance. And secondly, it's talking about small companies as well as large companies. And I think that's a really, really important dimension to think about. Whatever we do, and I wholeheartedly support the idea that the SSB should be set up as soon as possible and encourage global convergence from existing work that's been done. There is a lot of work that's been done, but we also have to be proportionate and we have to be very aware that we don't put such a burden on small enterprises that it becomes very difficult. 
And I think we've learned lessons on the accounting side that we can apply from the, from the get-go when we think about small social enterprises. But the key thing for me is that we use consistent language and consistent frameworks. Because the one thing you don't want, if you're an entrepreneur and you're starting up, whether you're purpose-driven or profit-driven or both, is to suddenly find halfway through your evolution of your company, you've got to completely relearn the way in which you engage with capital markets. So we have to find a continuum from the large companies through to the smaller ones that is relevant. And I think that's very, very important. And that means thinking through ahead of time the different constituencies and being pragmatic as well as purposeful in what we do. There's no doubt at all that the combination of climate change, social justice movement and COVID has put the whole question of purpose and outcomes and responsibility onto large corporate agendas as well as social enterprises. And I think if we can find a way of engaging with capital markets in a consistent way around that, that will be very helpful because there is still a plethora of different ways in which information is requested from companies. But let's do it pragmatically and let's do it in a way that could reflect a small purpose-driven company and a large profit-driven company because at the point of meeting, they will overlap on key criteria and key essentials. And we know enough from learning our accounting standards progress that we can anticipate some of that. The other thing, though, is to make sure we don't try and strive for perfection and spend so long perfecting things that we aren't putting them into the market for use. This is a very, very fast space. It is dynamic and it is situational. And whilst it's structural, as Sandy said, and it's what regulators are expecting, which is what Chajinda said, we should really start moving forward from existing standards as smoothly as possible so that we can start to get the experience and start to get track records of the relevance of data as forward indicators of future performance and value creation. It's extremely helpful. And actually, I want to come back to Tajinda, Elizabeth, in light of what you've said, because we both need to cover the spectrum of large to very small companies with different kinds of, of governance and missions. We also need to prevent fragmentation globally or geographically. And, and so Tajinda, I want to come back to you because you really do look at things globally. Why is it so important that we get this right from the beginning? Sure. I think, uh, no, absolutely. If we were talking about, uh, you know, 20 years ago when the IFRS Foundation was set up. Now, 20 years after that, capital markets, if anything, are even more globalized. As an example, you know, in a completely different area, we found that derivatives markets are so global that we needed international standards for financial market infrastructures and for margin requirements. And last year, uh, or the year before that, we had done some work on market fragmentation and market participants and authorities realized and recognized the need to avoid harmful fragmentation driven by regulatory measures as that by itself can give rise to different risks. And therefore having global principles is, is helpful in this context. Uh, on the other hand, I think we can say that because this is basically our bread and butter, establishing global standards, that global standards and principles can work well, can interact well with, with the local. And in this current context, maybe the way I would like to think about it is going back to the buildings block, building blocks approach that I just mentioned, which is that the IFRS's, the SSVs, the Sustainability Standard Board standards, should ideally be the global standard on the enterprise value side. But we probably need a mechanism that is able to filter in the elements from the gray box, from that outermost box, from the broader materiality perspective, which are more likely to be jurisdiction specific. So there is an interplay between global on the one hand and jurisdiction specific on the other hand. And that's why we hope that the solution that is being developed now will be supported globally, but that it should allow interoperability with jurisdiction specific standards. So maybe that's my, my answer really, Clara, to, to your point. Back to you. Thank you. Yes, and I, and I think the role of jurisdiction specific work here is so intertwined with local public policy priorities. Um, and, and there needs to be more conversation about that. How, what can be global? What needs to be local inherently? And how can we celebrate both, if you will, with a system that takes both into account? Richard, we've had an interesting question in the chat, which I want to bring back to you. So it's, it's someone called Anando Saka. Thank you for asking the question. 
and he's asking how can we incorporate some form of discounting or bring externalities into the balance sheet and i think there's quite a lot in there and you could look at that in different ways but he, you know he makes the point that the mispricing of climate risk in his view is bigger than the mispricing of subprime mortgages and so i wanted just to hear some reflections from you richard how far can the balance sheet per se take us and and then what else do we need to be doing just to come back to your earlier conceptual point yeah i'm, I'm smiling because i've just finished revising a paper on precisely that question so i can send Ananda a copy of that if if, uh, if that would be helpful the balance sheet does not anticipate the future because there is no such thing as reliable information about the future there is only reliable information about the past you can't you can't audit the future so accounting has a niche which is providing one type of input into investment decisions um, likewise on externalities the, the accounts are not intended to capture externalities and if you start to build those into the accounts, you compromise the usefulness of the, the existing usefulness of the accounts. So you don't want to undermine financial accounts as they are currently done. What you do need to do is complement them with other information. So the information gap is not because the balance sheet isn't good enough. The information gap is because there isn't sufficient sustainability related disclosures that go alongside the balance sheet. You're listening to Leadership in Extraordinary Times with me, Peter Tufano. In this episode, we're looking at how capital markets can take sustainability to the next level. To address this question, we've got four top authorities in the field. Sandy Boss, Global Head of Investment Stewardship for BlackRock, Elizabeth Corley, Chair of the Impact Investing Institute, Dejinder Singh, Deputy Secretary General of the International Organization of Securities Commissions, and Richard Barker, Professor of Accounting and Associate Dean of Faculty here at Side Business School. Chairing the event is Clara Barbie, Chief Executive of the Impact Management Project. The discussion now moves on to climate. The International Financial Reporting Standards Foundation has tested in its consultation whether it should take the lead on climate. There were nearly 600 responses to that consultation and an overwhelming response that yes, it should. But there's also an overwhelming call not to stop there. We're going to pick this topic up with Sandy Boss for a practitioner's perspective. Why does BlackRock always talk about ESG and not just E? Elizabeth Corley follows on from that to talk about this topic in the context of the just transition. As a society, why can we not dislocate climate from other matters? First up, Sandy Boss. One of our uh, comments in the consultation, which we responded to on December 30th, was, yes, please, climate, and don't stop there. So climate risk has become so significant that now we're seeing an increasing number of actual, you know, significant multi-billion dollar write-offs that uh, energy companies are taking. But what we're also seeing is it's affecting discount rates and cost of capital as we're seeing a gap between the companies that are managing that sustainability risk well and those that aren't. But I think it's really important for us to recognize that these are not the only really significant financial risks, um, future financial risks that companies are taking on. So take the example of natural capital. So a company depending on biodiversity, forestry, replenishment, water, you know, WEF has estimated now that 50% of GDP is dependent on the use of of nature in some fashion. And I've seen data from Swiss Re that says 20% of companies actually have a dependence for their business model on an exposed or endangered ecosystem. So that is a really significant risk now. Similarly, if you look at social issues, obviously we've talked a lot about purposeful business management and how that can be a positive differentiator. But then you see, you know, recently in the couple, past couple of weeks, you know, Vale, the Brazilian mining company, taking a seven billion financial cost associated with the tragic and devastating um, uh, dam burst that occurred a couple of years ago. So these are, you know, it's not just climate issues; it's a full range of social issues that matter. Um, if we then think about, you know, our ESG approach, well, that's kind of what the investment research shows us. So I talked earlier about the products that we're forming and where we're seeing differentiation. And thus far, we have formed some low carbon transition products. It's early days for investing in a net zero transition. And I believe those will show um, promising uh, return characteristics. But what our data shows us right now is that 
the risk returns associated with ESNG oriented investing, bringing those factors in together, that's where we're able to see really differentiated performance, um, superior risk return uh, performance vis-a-vis, you know, a sort of standard traditional index. Great. And Elizabeth, I'd love your commentary. Uh, Sandy's spoken so well from the perspective of enterprise value and why these factors interrelate. What about from the perspective of society and what we need? Well, the two are inextricably linked, as Sandy said, and I think we we have a sort of legacy from the last century of bucketing things as economic or social or political. And if anything, we've learned in the last few years is that th- these are very porous membranes and what might be economic today can become social tomorrow and vice versa. And this is particularly true as we address uh, climate transition, a transition to a net zero world, because in any transition, in any industrial revolution, there are winners and losers. And we know that capital markets are completely indifferent to winners and losers. They're not there to police morality. They're not there as a value system. However, if you have short-term winners at the consequence of long-term losers, that is an unbalanced transition that just will not last. It will implode. And as Sandy commented on, There is no doubt at all that the more thought given to the way in which we now renew post-COVID, building back into not just um, a greener environment, but one which is more sustainable on many factors and is fairer, I think will really make resilient economies. We want to stimulate innovation, create jobs, sustainable jobs and skills. And what better way to do it than deploy talent and capital to address the biggest challenge this world faces? But if we do that in a way which is indiscriminate and doesn't reflect on that wider responsibility, um, then we cannot assume that those returns are going to be sustainable returns, whether that's profitable or whether it's in terms of political or regulatory acceptance or whether it's consumer loyalty. And I think a question came in around the whole question of supply chain. We know, we've seen, we talked about that dreadful Vale experience, but we know that there's an expectation in capital markets which don't think they just act there's an expectation of sensible supply chain behavior when we discover that supply chain mismanagement has happened it has very very significant consequences on valuations and customer loyalty both so i think these things are inextricably intertwined and certainly if you were sitting in a a corporate boardroom you would well be talking about carbon and environment and other things but equally You'll be talking about inclusion, diversity, equality, approach to supply chain, approach to um, the way in which you look after your people, gender and other inequalities. These are inextricably linked. Thank you. And we have another question, Elizabeth. We've all talked about urgency. There's a a pointed question on, yes, but what is the timeline? So Tajinda, perhaps a reflection from you, and then I invite, obviously, anyone else to weigh in. Sure. I think uh, probably... Uh, you know, a good reference point is the announcement by the trustees of the IFRS Foundation that was earlier this month about what the next steps are. And there, you know, there is a clear recognition about the role of the IFRS Foundation as well as, uh, you know, the establishment of the Sustainability Standards Board. So uh, what, what that talks about is that the trustees will produce a definitive proposal by the end of uh, September of this year. And it could possibly lead to an announcement of the establishment of the new SSB by November 2021, which is basically the COP26 summit, I think. So that's those are the timelines. Now, that's about the setting up of the SSB. I think to that, I would basically you know, add the point that we've talked about here, which is that there is, it's not like we're starting from scratch in terms of you know, um, the work that has already happened uh, with the voluntary standard setters there working together. And therefore, there is a mass of material. There is, you know, on the climate side, we have the prototype that is there. And therefore, there is that urgency that we are all talking about is actually pretty much ingrained into the processes that are there. And I think, therefore, that can actually lead to a, a very quick. Now, after the SSB is set up, I think it can actually lead to a very quick setting up of the standard. But let me just add a note, a caveat here that. It is true, it is urgent, and that's why we are all here. We are wanting to get things done by yesterday, if possible. But I think the, you know, when we talk about the success of the IFRS Foundation that was set up 20 years ago, let's not forget that due process is an important element. 
of the staying power, you know, and the acceptability of, of a particular standard in, in the markets and around the globe. So urgency, yes, impatience somewhat, but, you know, speed not at the cost of due process is, 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 is the point that I would make here. Great point. And Sandy, if there are companies either, you know, actual or potential investees of BlackRock listening to this, what would be your message to them in terms of what they should be doing now rather than sitting around waiting? Well, yes, thank you for asking, because we do have a very specific message, which is we would like companies to be reporting using TCFD, four pillars. Um, so we want to see governance, risk management, strategy, targets and metrics that show how companies will be aligned toward that well below two degree, ideally 1.5 degree world, a net zero by 2050 world. We recognize that not every company is in exactly the same place. We don't think there should be a one size fits all strategic pathway but it is very important for companies to demonstrate how they will be fitting into that journey. And we ask for the SASB standards for the industry and that the company is in. Um, and there it's because in order to develop that ES and G perspective that's so important, there are many matters beyond climate that really do matter to us as investors. And you know, we recognize that companies have been reporting using other standards. So for example, um, GRI, many of the metrics can be mapped directly to SASB standards, so we ask companies to do that. I mean, our hope, you know, coming back to Dajinder's point, is if the private standard setters can actually converge toward the SSB, ideally we won't have the perfect be the enemy of the good, and we can get, you know, global recognition of the importance of TCFD reporting, increasing um, alignment around the relevant metrics that companies need to report. And then that becomes the foundation for that future IFRS sponsored sustainability standards board due process produced set of standards. Great. So the message is definitely don't wait, get going now internally within your company. But I have to say, you know, the, the timeline that Tajinda outlined as a potential timeline, that is fast. COP26, all roads leading to Glasgow, that is fast. And, and as you all said, with the level of content that's already been developed, that's quite an optimistic path before us, I think, if it can be achieved. Now, there's a very good, I like our audience, there's a very punchy question here, which from Kim Polgreen, and, and Kim, thank you for asking this, which is why has this taken so long? She says at KPMG, we were pointing out risks on reputation, changing laws, liabilities back in 2000. It's a really fair question. Richard, I'm going to come to you. What is it that's taken us until now to be moving? And now suddenly we're all moving so quickly. Well, it's a, it's a combination of factors. If you, if you take climate, you know, a, a precondition for developing climate related standards is having some form of consensus on what carbon emissions are. So. The work of the Greenhouse Gas Protocol, which is pretty much 20 years old, years old now, I think, uh, was absolutely essential in defining what we mean by, by carbon emissions and equating other forms of greenhouse gas in terms of, of carbon potential and so on. Once you have those kinds of standards in place, you then need the appropriate institutional pressures and structures. And I think what you're seeing now is those things coming together. So the ecosystem I mentioned before of investors calling for this information, so all those institutional pressures just take time, I think, is the reality of it. But now, now is an absolutely critical window because they're all coming together. I think a big shift that has occurred in the last couple of years was that these issues have become central to mainstream finance. So if you looked back five or 10 years, um, active investors were engaging with very carbon intensive companies and you know, there was some very robust dialogue. Um, but you know, I came from the Bank of England prior to my role at BlackRock. And when we made the switch to say, we're not just worried about the financial risk that created the last financial crisis, but we now recognize that unless we bring forward the risk associated with climate risk into the financials of the banks and insurance companies we're regulating, there will be no good point at which we'll recognize that. The mechanism that says stress testing is for three years or five years doesn't show the exposure. So I do think the Bank of England's work putting this onto the risk management um, landscape, combined with the FSB founding TCFD, and now increasingly the role that many regulators are playing to ask banks in particular, as well as insurance companies to be more focused on this. I do think there's been a tipping point 
and that then that really does change the dialogue from what was previously you know bilateral um, discussions between very responsible active investors and their most carbon intensive companies. And Clara, I'd just add to that, I completely agree with what Sandy said. I think a lot has been happening in the last 20 years. And I think the, the whole shift of thinking this is optional, an optional extra, and also that it's only about risk management. It's essentially about risk management, but it's also about opportunity creation. You, there are so many um, issues to be addressed. You can't just say, I'm no longer holding X in my portfolio. I don't want to buy that because somebody else will end up buying it and that will not address climate change. So this has to be a very inclusive approach. It has to be one about looking at brown assets as well as green assets and really incentivizing accelerated innovation and solutions to address the climate challenge. I mean, um, ex-Governor Mark Carney talking about the Bank of England said this is probably one of the biggest opportunities that we have as well as one of the biggest risks. And Elizabeth, I mentioned at the beginning that you are a director on public companies as well. What's the mood in the boardroom? And has that mood changed? Massively, Clara. I, I think it started, it was already there. I mean, everybody, all the companies I were on were thinking about these issues. But the last 18 months, the whole attitude has accelerated. And it's been this perfect storm of real awareness of the, of the state of urgency around climate change and including natural capital and biodiversity, not just carbon as, as described. Uh, thinking about the whole social justice movement last year and then the, the cracks in society and in resilience that COVID has shown. And all these things coming together, this, this is absolutely central to boardroom discussions. And I think there is a lot going on that already. And I think, as Richard said, the time is right. This is about an ecosystem change and systems change. The one thing I think we should do better this time is think across silos so that we get the whole of the ecosystem represented in the way in which we can move rapidly. And to use Tachinda's phrase, that there is a sort of filtering mechanism of good ideas that come in from more regional or jurisdictional levels um, that is more dynamic than we've seen in the past. But we can learn from that. I think it's a huge opportunity this year uh, to get this right. The panel now turns to the question of industry specificity. Why is this important? We're gonna get Richard Barker's reflections on this given his deep knowledge of financial accounting standards. Does he think that when it comes to sustainability information and reporting, an industry lens is more important? And if so, why? Yeah, my, my view on this is that one shouldn't be too binary, right? So if you think about financial reporting currently, the financial reporting standards are not explicitly designed by industry but different industries have different financial reporting models when it comes down to it and they're analyzed by different sectors by investors and so on so so industry is built into financial accounting and financial reporting as is um, and then from a from a sustainability perspective sustainability issues are not just specific to industry right so a, a ton of carbon emissions is a ton of carbon emissions whichever industry you happen to be in so a degree of industry reporting is very important and a degree of standardization across industry is also very important it's actually not one or the other, I think. It's a matrix. It always is. And I, but it was interesting hearing Sandy talk about the role of SASB and how, how decision useful it is for you at the investment level, Sandy. Do you think that in addition to what Richard said, the way in which strategic asset allocation tends to be done and the industry lens that's often applied is part of what is making the industry focus useful for sustainability information or, or have you learned different things about it? I mean, it's an interesting question about where is the greater value um, allocating between industries or allocating within industries across sustainability. I would say that, you know, while there has been a theory that all of the value generated in ESG investing over the last year associated with essentially, you know, going long tech and short oil and gas, that actually hasn't proven to be the case. While obviously there has been a K-shaped performance with one set performing better than the other. Where we've actually seen a lot of differentiation is within sectors, companies that are managing their carbon exposure, companies that are managing their other sustainability risks better, pulling ahead of those who are doing so in a less good fashion. And you can look in any industry, I think, and find real differentiation. So. I mean, I agree with Richard's point. It is it is a continuum, and you know, sadly, yes, it, it is a matrix where factor X will be very important across 
you know, five industries and irrelevant to others, but nonetheless, you know, the, the understanding of that factor and where that needs to be considered, that's very important, you know, for companies who need to make prioritization decisions and also for investors to know what are the things I really need to worry about. Um, but yeah, it, it is not one size fits all. I do agree though with the point, you know, a, a ton of carbon is a ton of carbon. And, you know, we've actually identified a thousand companies that will focus on more than we do otherwise um, in our listed company universe because those are companies that have significant carbon footprints irrespective of what their industry is. Um, one point I'll just make, and I think Elizabeth has talked a lot about small and medium companies. I do think one of the risks that we're attentive to um, and my group focusing on large listed companies is that you know what we don't want is an outcome where unsustainable activities migrate into so-called other regions or private companies that have different goals. So it is important as the Sustainability Standards Board um, thinks about its work and as regulators pick up its work that we ensure that we don't get sort of dark pockets of unsustainable activity because that doesn't really help anyone. That kind of cleans up one set of companies but leaves issues um, that frankly the planet still has to deal with. Agreed. Thank you. And there's another interesting question about greenwashing. How can investors crack through greenwashing? And that's asked by, by Wendy Addison. And, and actually, to Jinder, I'd like to bring that to you because you touched on the role of assurance. Uh, and although it might be very obvious, you know, the, the reason why global standards with the due process that you were emphasizing are so important is because then it allows for assurance. Can you reflect a bit more on that for us and help us understand how you as securities regulators think about that to prevent greenwashing? Thank you. When we were, you know, when the discussions first started about sustainability and so on, I think the first thing that we were talking about was not about sustainability reporting, but about addressing greenwashing. Because clearly as regulators, that's the thing that we are concerned about. And, and indeed, these are all interrelated things, you know, the proper supply of information, proper disclosure, indeed it goes back even to taxonomy, connects really to what is disclosed and whether what is disclosed is in accordance essentially with the label on the tin or not is basically the, the point that we are we are talking about. And we we do take this quite seriously. That is the other work stream that I mentioned we are talking about. The work stream on disclosures is the one that is kind of running along fast because of the urgency that we are talking about. But this one is not too far behind. What we are trying to see is essentially what is what are the disclosures that are also made at at firm level, at asset managers level, and are also taking into account any of the case studies that would be available inside, uh, you know, jurisdictions to see whether we can actually have a set of, uh, of of good practices or best practices that we can have to be able to help regulators, because similar to what we were talking about industries and so on, the regulatory arena is also diverse. You have people at different ends of the spectrum. And our job is to be able to make sure that, you know, people are able to look at what are the best practices and the good practices uh, across the world to be able to cross fertilize so that, you know, we are able to address this, this issue sooner rather than later, because a, a scandal, let's say, in this area can actually set back, you know, a lot of the work that we are really talking about. So I, I have to say that. At, at a very, very core level, that's the basic stuff of regulation, which is about saying, okay, you know, if there is mis-selling happening, then that needs to be addressed. But there are differences as well here. And, and I think we should, the, the ability and, and what we will be able to come up with in terms of these practices should go a long way in terms of helping regulators and supervisors to address, uh, address greenwashing. Now, Richard, we are just a few minutes more of our session and I want to come to you for final reflections having listened to the dialogue that we've had. What are the key messages we should leave the audience with today from your perspective? Well, that's, that's, that's a big question, however. I think the first thing is the mainstreaming of sustainability. So, you know, you, you don't have purpose and impact and CSR or something in one box and um, profit-making corporations in a completely different space, you know, as, as, as both Elizabeth and Sam were describing, uh, at board level, it's inconceivable that you're not thinking about transition to zero carbon, for example, um, diversity and inclusion within your organization and so on. So 
The second thing that, that I think is striking is that governments here, we haven't talked too much about governments, but they've been latent in the discussion, and they have two quite distinct roles. I think if we're going to get to a, a rolling out of a global solution for standard setting, then support by different jurisdictions across the planet is incredibly important. Moreover, governments have a role with respect to societal reporting and not just to investors. So we focused on reporting to investors and on the role of the IFRS Foundation and the needs of investors and so on. There are additional needs for corporate reporting for impact on environment and society. And governments need to step up and fill the gap, as it were, that's, that's not met by just reporting to investors. The third thing, which I think is absolutely critical, is the urgency of all of this. And that's been mentioned several times uh, by all, all three of the other panelists. And there, I think it's really important that there is, there is collaboration across the system. So the, the challenge of sustainability is not a national challenge or an industry challenge or a regional challenge, it's a global challenge. And, and the natural solution for reporting standards is a global solution. And so um, the faster that all of the relevant parties, investors and companies in particular, there's very strong voices, but also regulators, you know, the world to gender and the way he's talked about OSCO and so on, and governments and so on and so forth, all need to, to come together on this. And recognising that there is a very strong platform on which to build. So when Sandy was describing the uh, BlackRock support for TCFD and SASB, what she's describing there is something that's absolutely in line with the development of IFRS, because that is the direction of travel, right? So a, in just the same way that when the ISB came into being, it adopted the standards of its predecessors. You would expect a sustainability standards board to come into being and adopt the best practices already out there. So the more that investors and companies are moving in the direction of, for example, adopting TCFD, the faster the system will get there. So that urgency, I think, is, is critically important not to lose that. My thanks to Richard Barker, Sandy Boss, Elizabeth Corley, Tejinder Singh, and Clara Barbie. My name is Peter Tefano, and you've been listening to Leadership Extraordinary Times, a podcast from Oxford University's Said Business School. Before you go, remember to rate, review, and subscribe to future episodes wherever you get your podcasts. In the next episode, we'll be looking at the evolution of high-impact entrepreneurship and why this investment sector is more important than ever as the world begins to emerge from the pandemic. You can find more information about this and all our previous episodes from Leadership in Extraordinary Times at oxfordanswers.org. Until next time, thanks for listening.